Hello listeners, Andy Heiss here with a quick message from one of our sponsors. Are you a student looking to sell your art? Look no further than artbystudents.com. Their platform is specifically designed to help students showcase and sell their work to a wider audience. With artbystudents.com, you can easily create a profile, upload your art, and start selling in no time. Plus, their simple and secure payment system makes it easy for buyers to purchase your work. So check out artbystudents.com today to get started. That's artbystudents.com. Welcome to the Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast, making art work. We highlight how entrepreneurs align their artistry, passion, and vision to create and pursue opportunities to capture value in the arts. The views expressed by guests on the Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the views of the podcast or its hosts. The appearance of a guest on the podcast, the venture they represent, or reference to any product or service does not imply an endorsement or recommendation by the podcast or its hosts. The content provided is for entertainment and informational purposes only and does not constitute business advice. Here are your hosts, Andy Heiss and Nick Petrella. Hello, Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast listeners. My name is Andy Heiss. And I'm Nick Petrella. Today, we're excited to have acclaimed sculptor Alan Cottrell on the podcast. He's had a fascinating path to becoming an arts entrepreneur. After college and enlisting in the U.S. Army, he founded a successful fast food chain and traveled the world as an international entrepreneur. After touching clay for the first time in 1990, he sold his business interests and dedicated himself full-time to becoming one of the finest figurative sculptors in the world. Allen's sculptures can be found in universities, memorials, and other venues throughout the United States. We'll have his website in the show notes so you can read more about him and his works. Alan, thanks for making the time to be with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. You seem like a very driven person. So I'm wondering if you had any doubts when you first became a full-time sculptor. No. (laughs) None whatsoever? (laughs) No. I set a goal, then I bust my ass to reach my goal. Excellent. What What was that goal? To become the finest figurative sculptor in the world. So I I set a list of uh, steps to reach the goal. And really, it was three steps. Outwork every living figurative sculptor. Outthink every living figurative sculptor. And outfeel every living figurative sculptor. Have more passion. So toward that end, I moved to New York City. And I studied from 9 o'clock in the morning till 10 at night, uh, six days a week. And then I was at the Metropolitan Museum every Sunday and sometimes took Sunday classes. So nobody had ever taken all three classes at the Art Students League back to back to back. I had just run a marathon. It was a lot harder physically and mentally than the marathon. But I was going to get as good as I could, as fast as I could. And you studied anatomy as well, didn't you? Yeah, I went to Columbia Medical Center. I found one guy in the country, the only person that was teaching anatomy from the cadaver for artists. 
and he was mostly teaching for Juilliard uh, Dance School and mm -hmm. Pratt Art Institute, but a couple of us found out from the Art Students League and got hooked up with him. Then we hired him to give us Sunday afternoon lectures, and he would go for four or five hours nonstop. Uh, maybe this week it would be from the elbow to the wrist. <laughs> he could wow. go on for five hours about that. So, wow. Yeah. And do you think that that was – we're musicians, right? So I, you know, I personally can't relate to it, but is that – as helpful as studying the art, like you said, you're in the in the museum, or is it more helpful? Or no, it, it just kept me from making gross anatomical errors. So if if I were to cheat anatomy, cheat to human form, I could do it intentionally. A lot of times, mm. it's done unintentionally, but I knew right. what I should do. Do you, uh, and as Nick mentioned in your introduction, you've had some previous business success. Do you think, did that help you in your pursuit to become uh, a sculptor? Well, I think what helped me in both areas of endeavor was my extreme passion and intensity and my goal-drivenness. I, I just, once I decide on something, I... I'm the most intense person you'll ever meet, which isn't always appreciated, but that's <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably appreciated. Might not be understood. It's often not understood. <laughs> <laughs> On your website, you share a list of hundreds of commissions. And you know, coincidentally, it was through a commission that I became familiar with your work. Um give a like to give a shout out to Deb Spake. She's the dean of the uh, Ambassador Crawford College of Business and Entrepreneurship here at Kent State, and she suggested that you know we interview you for the podcast. You'd be a good guest because I think you you got a commission to um, create a sculpture for the new the, the new business building. Is that correct? Yes, a, a seven foot uh, sculpture of Ambassador Crawford from Ireland, mm. which. Coincidentally, I had moved my international business yeah. to Ireland and yeah. lived there and know Ireland quite well. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. Well, can you describe the commissioning process and, and the time frame it takes? Well, typically, uh, someone contacts me, of course, uh, often in person because here in my gallery slash museum slash studio in Zanesville. I have 500 of my sculptures. Mm. So they come in and they instantly can tell that I can do what I say I'm going to do because I've got what 70 life-size or larger bronzes here in my gallery. So they give me an idea what they want. And then I ask them, how do you want the piece to feel? And a lot of people don't think about the feeling of a piece. And, and that's the whole reason I sculpt is human emotion. Uh, I just love to explore the complexity of human emotion, uh, especially from the evolutionary psychological viewpoint, but right down to just the complexity of, of emotion. And in a piece, I, I try to... I asked them, what do you want the viewer to feel when they look at the piece? 
and I, I tell them, I want you to write it down. I want to know exactly what you want the viewer to feel. Uh, what clothing do you want on them? What age do you want them to uh, look like? Uh, because I can regress the age. Uh, I've shaved 50 to 70 pounds off a woman for her tomb sculpture, which yeah. I, and I've done, <laughs> I, I did that for a uh, coal baron. He owned more uh, coal mines than anybody in the country. And he had the biggest pot belly. And he commissioned me to do three life-size pieces, one in a coal miner's outfit, one in a suit, and one in a sweater vest. And I, I took about a third of his belly off without him even asking. And he looked at it and said, oh, no, no, that's way too big. Take, take more off. So I took uh, another half, half off. And no, no, that's too big. So by the time I was done, he was almost was flat belly. And when I delivered the three life-size sculptures to his headquarters, the staff there, when I unloaded them, they said, where's his belly? There's no belly. Oh, that's belly. funny. <laughs> they, they were howling because it, it didn't look like him. Cause it's in, it's <laughs> in the next truck. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. It was too big. To, to bring. Well, you could have used a photograph from when he was 19 or something. <laughs> Maybe. <Yeah. laughs> he, he had told me all these stories about how poor he was growing up. And as I was sculpting him in my studio, I had a visitor come in. I get about, oh, 2,000 tourists come through a year. And she said, that's, and I won't say his name, but <laughs> she said, I grew up with him and dated him at Ohio State. And I said, oh, well, he told me how poor he was. And she said, he wasn't poor. He drove the best car in town. And she told me all the stories about him. That, <laughs> anyway. That's funny. <laughs> so, so you come in that you ask, what do you want the viewer to feel? And where's the process go from there? Well, typically I'll do a maquette or a scale model of the piece and work out the, the gesture, the proportions, and then they either come in and look at the maquette or I send them photos of the maquette. Uh, and sometimes they want some small changes, rarely big changes. And if I agree with them, then I'll do it. And if I don't, I'll tell them, say, hey, that's going to look hokey. You don't want it to look hokey. So we come to an agreement. I make the changes, send them pictures. Then I, uh, enlarge, I figure out an enlarging ratio and, and just build a steel armature and put styrofoam over it and carve the styrofoam down and put earth and clay over it and get it close. Then I send them pictures of it close. And if they still like where it's going, then I put the final details on it and send them pictures or they come in and look at it. Then we make a rubber mold of it and cast mm -hmm. it into wax, and we cast it into bronze at the foundry I started here in Zanesville 26, 27 years ago. Wow. You know, I have a, there's a question I was going to ask later, but it just seems appropriate to ask now. Um, when you're making statues of people, right, or, well, just stick with people, it's not like abstract art. It either looks like a person or not, right? Without getting into specifics, was there ever an instance where a patron wasn't happy with the work or maybe a patron's family? And then how, how did you handle it? Absolutely. <laughs> well, I was... Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, more often than not, they're, they're happy with it. 
but more I strive to make it feel like them more than look like them. So when I'm doing a historic figure, I'll read a biography or all the information I can get on the person, and I'll try to understand their psyche, what, what they're really all about. And then I try to imbue that piece with that energy and, and that feeling. And then I put in the features. So. Yeah. And I try to convey that psyche that, that I, as I understand them, and especially how the patron wants that viewer to feel about that person. So it's right. everybody says, oh, that looks like him or that doesn't look like him. Yeah. I don't want to hear, does that feel like him? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. But you never had anything like, you know, a family looking at a memorial and, you know, asking why Uncle Frank is carrying an, an armadillo. Right. You're like, no, no, Not that's that, but yeah, I, I've had them look at it and say, oh, that doesn't really look like them. Okay. Yeah. What do you it does to me. That's right. <laughs> you, for the most part, they, they yeah. do. Yeah. They like it. Of course. And I'm just, you know, I mean, I've seen your artwork. It's, it's amazing. I was just kind of choking around. But do wonder. It's just like, you know, musicians, you could, you could go on stage and play great. And people are just like, meh. Or you can go out and just like not feel good. And people say they loved it. Here's a great example of that. I had two people came in my studio, and they actually were theoretical mathematicians, both of them, uh, professors in Georgia. And he was from France, a French national, and she was from China. And their children were a gorgeous blend of those, those two racial types. I mean, just beautiful little kids. And I sculpted each of them, and it, it felt very much like them. I mean, I was very happy with it. And I sent them pictures, and they said, oh, no, this isn't like them. And they sent me exact measurements of everything to change right down to the millimeter. And I thought, wow. okay, I'm going to do that. And I changed it exactly, I mean, to the millimeter. But what they said, they were hideous, looked nothing <laughs> like them. So, yeah. So, well, <laughs> and that, I mean, you're working with with clay and bronze, right? You're not working with skin and bones, you know. Yeah, it's not a photograph. You want a photograph? Right. Take a photograph, man. <laughs> right. Well, did did they end up buying the sculptures? They paid me for them, but we never cast them into bronze. They paid me yeah. for sculpting them. But yeah, it wow. was, yeah. Yeah, I, I was disappointed. I have them here. I cast them in bronze. So I have them on display here. I like them that well that I spent the money mm, myself. Yeah. 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 Alan, what was it or what is it about working with clay that made you fall in love with it, given all of your other experiences before <laughs> doing that? I use the analogy. It's like the first time I kissed a girl, the first time I touched clay. Oh, man, I'm going to do that all the time <laughs> if I can't. And my wife had pretty much put the kibosh on me kissing other girls, so uh, she's okay with me fondling clay all day. And it really is. It's, it's like making love all day long. Your hands are moving the clay, and it's so tactile and, and sensuous. But at the same time, many different parts of your brain have to work. There's the analytical part, because it is all about geometry, but then there's the emotional part. And I like that. I, I have kind of a mathematical, analytical brain, 
but I'm also incredibly passionate and romantic and sensitive. So it allows me to bring all those forces to bear. And then the other thing, you know, I have ADHD and I read a lot about it. And they say that those with ADHD, if they're really interested in something, have hyper-focused powers. Mm -hmm. And I know that to be true because that's what happens when I'm sculpted. And people will come in my studio and say, oh, you must have so much patience. And if my children are in here, they howl because I'm the least patient person you'll ever meet. Yeah, that's right. But when I'm sculpting, it's like lovemaking. Done properly, at least. You you don't know how much time passed. You can look look down and an hour has passed and you swear it was five or ten minutes. So So your, your kids weren't always happy to hold the flashlight for you? No. And then when they would pose for me, because I did each of their busts for my tomb sculpture, and it was awful because my my sons have ADHD and they're all fidgety and I'm cussing at them and yelling at them. And yeah, it's terrible. But I got them all done. It sounds like if if you could program a person perfect for sculpting, it sounds like you, you would be... You would be that. Well, I don't know about perfect, but I yes. Ideal, I, I have yeah. done a lot of things, and I've literally traveled the world and never found my niche. I mean, mm-hmm. I made a ton of money in my 30s, and I still wasn't happy. And when I touched clay, I pretty much gave up all my business, pretty much went broke again, and... Uh, been sculpting seven days a week for 32 years and i just i'm not going to stop till i drop that's great so alan this podcast as you know it's it's about arts entrepreneurship so could you tell us what went into your decision to start a foundry rather than use third uh, third party foundry well in in my fast food business i did everything i i was my own general contractor uh, I did a lot of the work myself. Uh, I built a corporate headquarters. Uh, I just, everything from start to finish. So once I started sculpting, it it didn't take long to realize, hey, wait a minute, I want control over everything. I want to be totally vertically integrated. And I mean, I'll answer the phone when somebody calls and asks about a commission and right up to the point I usually go with the statue and drill the holes when we install them. So I still like to have my hands in every aspect of it. Yeah. So you're doing the foundry work yourself too? That's No. You have have some folks that help you with that. Yeah, I have a foundry crew. uh, Okay. The the one boy, he's not a boy anymore, but he's been with me about 24 years. Wow. Uh, Then I have... Rachel, who you spoke with, she's mm-hmm. she started at age 18. She's been here almost 14 years. So uh, then I have oh, three or four other full-time people, real good yeah. people. They love doing this. They love to be able to help make something that will last for literally hundreds of years. Sure, yeah, yeah. And so are you doing other foundry work outside of just your own sculptures? Yes. So people come to you when they, okay. Probably 50% historically okay. of what we cast are other sculptors' work. Gotcha. We've had a couple of teams come down from Canada and cast with us a number of times. And mm-hmm. People from different parts of the country 
And it's worked out real well because if, if I don't, historically, I didn't have enough commissions to keep everybody busy. Right. So I, I was, my, uh, I, I'm real good at, at, at uh, juggling things and, and figuring logistics. That's the word I was trying to come up with. Yeah. Uh, just able to sequence everything, which most artists aren't too good at that. I might have 20 projects going on at the same time, and I know which one has to be done at what date, where we are in each of the sequencing of each of the pieces, and I love that. It's like I play a fair amount of chess, and it's very much like chess. I I need that mental stimulation to keep, mm-hmm. keep that thing firing pretty good. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. Visit artsentrepreneurshippodcast.com to learn more about our guest and how you can help support artists, the arts, and this podcast. Mm-hmm.